Today we're taking on one of the most controversial bottles in the world of bourbon. I am of course talking about Blanton's. This bottle that you see here if you're watching the video version is empty because I finished it while having a conversation about Blanton's that honestly I learned so much that blew my mind about the brand and the history of bourbon in the United States and all of those sorts of things. But before we get to that, what's up guys? My name is Chris and you're listening to the Whiskey Noobs Podcast. And today I got to have an awesome conversation with a Dominic Guglielmi. He is the author of the book Warehouse H. For those of you watching the video version, it is, of course, the book that I'm holding here. And he wrote the book Warehouse H about the history of Blanton's and how it has grown to become this incredibly influential bourbon. Whether you think it's good or not is besides the point. We do touch on that a little bit. We touch on whether it's worth the money, uh, maybe how you could have some chances at finding it if you're somebody who's looking for it. But that's not the main topic. The main topic is really the history of, of bourbon and of Blanton's and what shaped Blanton's and how Blanton's shaped the bourbon industry throughout the past few decades. And it was a really fun conversation because I got to ask questions that I personally have had about Blanton's and about the distilleries at the time that I couldn't find out. Like it's it's not easy info to find, but Dominic had just done so much research for this book that I was able to ask him these questions that I was able to to really nerd out. So if you're into nerding out about the history of bourbon, the culture, and the history of Blanton specifically in the way that I am, I think you're really gonna enjoy this conversation. Not only do we talk about like where it came from and things like that, but we also talk about myths and legends that have developed over the years that actually aren't true. And that for me was very interesting because as I'm sure you guys do, I hear those things online all the time. So without further ado, I'm going to cut to my interview with Dominic Guglielmi, the author of Warehouse H. I have something specific that I want to start with because no matter what you say about Blanton's on the internet... no. It, Whatever take you have, somebody's going to love it and somebody's going to hate it. So I thought in order to cushion that a little bit, let's just start off with your background, who you are, sure. and your perspective coming into the whiskey world and, and where you are now with whiskey as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, first off, thanks for having me. Great to be here. And, uh, you know, I got into this journey um, of, of bourbon and whiskey through Blanton's, um, which is really an introductory bottle for so many people. Uh, I started probably 2017. I was gifted a bottle and I actually write this story in the book, but essentially I wanted to collect the horses and you know, I wanted to collect the different variations of Blanton's uh, that I found on the internet. And, and I found there was several, you know, and soon I discovered there was these international varieties and things like that. So I was very intrigued by it uh, for the, you know, taterness of it. It was, it was fun. It was, it was new and it was exciting for me. And uh, it just had an allure to it. Um, I wasn't sophisticated and still don't proclaim to be the most sophisticated bourbon uh, drinker. Um, I know Blanton's is not the best. I certainly understand that. But, uh, you know, there was an allure to the brand, I guess, for me. And, mm -hmm. and after that, it became this rabbit hole uh, of collecting and then ultimately um, culminated in writing the book um, just based on the knowledge and uh, experience that I gained uh, tracking the brand. So it was really uh, a multi-year journey. And here we are. And and uh, I'm real happy to, to be able to share this book and a lot of Blanton's knowledge with the world. 
Yeah, and I love to hear that too because I think that it's it's great to see that you're coming from the hobbyist perspective, the enthusiast perspective. Um, this isn't this isn't uh, you know you were hired to write something about something that right. you don't care about. You know this this is coming from an intrigue in Blanton's, which I know so many people listening have um, for better or worse, no matter which side of it they're coming from. <laughs> it's an Very intrigue in Blanton's. Yeah. So now you mentioned in 2017 was when you first started trying yeah. Blanton's, drinking it. Yep. Now, what was the landscape like? I was not of legal drinking age at that point. So I'm curious okay. Where, okay. what it was looking like. <laughs> well, you know what was interesting? It, you know, uh, bourbon has been on a boom for the past, you know, probably going on 15 years now, but really the last 10 years, it's been super strong. And of course, COVID propelled it to, to new highs. Um, back then it was similar to what it is today, just, you know, maybe just a few less people into it, but it was already impossible to find many of the allocated bourbons, you know, in, in the stores, uh, especially in States like Ohio, where you and I both, both live, um, just flies off the shelf when it's at, uh, standard retail pricing. So, um, you know, the scene wasn't much different. Uh, there was certain brands that you could find probably more easily than you do today. Certain ones that hadn't quite the hype train hadn't caught up with them yet. Um, but, uh, you know, for the most part, it was already kind of a, a difficult task. Now, specific to Blanton's, what I can tell you is within the rare bottle collecting um, community, which I certainly partake in, there's a few of them behind me uh, for those watching the video. Um, back then, they were more obtainable. Uh, there are, you know, releases that they that that uh, Buffalo Trace sends every year to France, for example, and those releases, there's you know two, three, four, five barrels worth that they do. Um, and you know, back then you could still find some of the early releases. You could still find, you know, some of the early two thousands releases that they did in those, uh, for those, for those markets. Now you just can't find those bottles. They're, they're just impossible. They've been snapped up by collectors or otherwise consumed. Okay. Yeah. That's actually really good to know. I hadn't thought about the, uh, the overseas stuff. And, and that's actually one of the questions I had for you was about, how that all works, what the different varieties of Blanton's are, because I am not into the the rare stuff enough to really know about it. So is that where most of these these bottles you see with the wild labels, like you mentioned behind you and things yeah. like that, those are coming from overseas yeah. then? Yeah, exactly. And and I started, you know, my journey as I mentioned by wanting to just collect the the currently produced varieties. And you know, most readers, or excuse me, most listeners will. Uh, understand that you know that we have blends in the U.S. Uh, more recently, they've started offering the gold and the straight from the barrel um, variants. And beyond that, there's other Japanese-specific uh, labels. So you know, there's seven currently totally uh, current currently produced. Uh, that includes both versions of a of the gold label. A lot of people forget there's a Japanese uh, version of the gold, um, but seven currently produced. And as I found out about those. I wanted I wanted to own them all, and I was at the time traveling for for work uh, to Japan quite frequently. So I was able to obtain those seven, and I really thought I had the lineup. I thought I had the the full you know Blanton's collection. The problem is, and as you referenced, you get into sort of googling Blanton's, and you find there's a lot of other labels, things that are just what is this bizarre thing. So that's what led me to to create my website, warehouseh.com. Um, just to catalog it. I just wanted to, you know, basically create, provide an informational source because I got tired of seeing the same bottles pop up in different groups and Facebook and things where people are asking questions and saying, what is this? You know, and the same answers will be given sometimes erroneously. Um, so I just created the, the website to document the brand um, more as a catalog. And 
then from there went down that rabbit hole, you know, again, of collecting, trying to seek out these bottles. And, and I had such good fortune along the way. I was able to, to really find numerous bottles that are so rare that there's only a few of them are, that are known to exist and just had a very widespread network of people helping me out, um, searching for those bottles. And I'm, I'm proud to have some pretty cool ones in my collection now. Wow. Yeah, that's really exciting. And then so the book or the the website came before the book. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that was that before you even had the idea you wanted to write the book? This was okay. Yeah. So go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. The the website really just was and still is pretty much a a catalog, a picture catalog of all the the bottles. It has the the known barrel numbers um, for those rare releases. uh, And it has some other basic information. Outside of that, it was not a history. It was not, I, I have a blog out there that I rarely update. Um, you know, it was just really just a, a pictorial reference guide for people. So the book materialized because after I pretty much collected all the rare bottles, I'm, I'm missing three at the moment um, from the known, um, the, the known library of Blanton's rare bottles. Um, after I pretty much collected them all, the, the, the fun was in the chase. It was in the hunt. And so, I couldn't, you know, I needed something to satisfy sort of that, uh, you know, scratch that itch, I guess. And with that, the concept of the book was born because I had gained so much knowledge. And I, I you know, I'm, I guess I'm kind of a perfectionist. You know, I, again, I get tired of seeing people post things and you're like, oh, that's not right. You know, and I don't want to be the guy to correct them and come across that way. But, you know, there's so many times factual information um, was not really factual. Uh, and, and I think what solidified it for me was seeing even other writers um, I'm not going to name names, but other writers, well-known people who didn't always quite get the story right, not because they were faulty in their research, but because some of the stories about Blanton's have been told mm-hmm. over and over so long that we just accept them as true. And we don't know mm-hmm. that there's more to the story. And it wasn't that they were blatantly, patently false. It was just uh, there was more to the story. And I, I had already known some of that. And I said, let's do it. Let's dive in and you know, let's uh, let's try to create something here that honors the brand and you know, hopefully something people want to read. Absolutely. So how, if I, you're totally right, we tell all these legends about it that they just get told over and yeah. over again. So in what way were you able to unearth which ones were myth and which ones were real? Was yeah. it just from all of the research accumulating or how'd you go about that? Yeah. Significant research, research. I, I went, um, you know, I, I've been to Japan multiple times, um, uh, France for La Maison de Whiskey, which is where they release uh, annual Blanton's releases. Those trips are are great, but the real research that got me things and answers that I, you know, others maybe didn't quite know or hasn't been fully told came right here in, in the U.S. from people that were associated with the brand in the early years. Um, you know, I did I became sort of an investigative journalist and trying to track people down and, you know, Google them and find, you know, these names. And sometimes people are fairly elderly um, to get them to, you know, talk to me to say, Hey, I'm writing a book. Will you give me some information about your time? Maybe back at Buffalo trace uh, back, you know, 30 years ago. And so, yeah, I found some really cool stuff. And, and um, if you'd like, I'll give you a few examples of some of those, those erroneous. That would be great. That's <laughs> my next question. Yeah. Go for yeah, it. Yeah. So probably, um, Probably the biggest one is that I see repeated all the time is that Blanton's was first released in Japan. Um, back in the 80s, bourbon was in a, a real glut or uh, a real dry spell here in the in the U.S. There was it was the bottom of the market. Nobody wanted it. And there was a, a bourbon glut where basically there was all this surplus bourbon. 
and and it was aging. They couldn't sell it fast enough. Meanwhile, you had Japan, who at the time were seeing a very uh, large increase in their their um, love of bourbon. It had started in the seventies and continued through the eighties. And so those that East meets West happened, and you saw this infusion of of Japanese purchasing of of American uh, brands, such as uh, eventually in 1992, um, Age International, the brand owner of Blanton's, um, and other distilleries as well, even since then. But from a, where was Blanton's first released and why was it released? It was Japan, or it was, excuse me, it was the United States. It, It released here first in the fall of 84. Japan didn't get it until 1985. So there was a lot of desire to sell in the uh, Japanese market and the product they knew would sell better there. But the owners of the distillery at the time, two gentlemen named Ferdy Falk and Robert Baranaskis, they very much wanted a top shelf bourbon here in the U.S. And, um, and, and I see that sort of story continuously condensed down to Blanton's was made for Japan and first distributed there and then came here. Eh you know, little bit, little bit of a story around that. Okay. That's a, that's a really good example because <clears throat> you're absolutely right that that gets kind of propagated sometimes. So, um, I imagine in the book you're kind of going throughout and you're, you're talking about the, the whole timeline, the whole history, but you're kind of unearthing these little Easter eggs of, yeah. of misinformation that have made their way uh, online. Yeah. yeah. Some other that, examples go ahead. would, would be, um, Elmer T. Lee, um, I love Elmer. I've said this to a few folks uh, recently in different uh, interviews and things. Elmer's great. He's a legend. Um, but he gets this sort of sole credit for, for creating Blanton's. And the, the background of it, and this is a, a, a theme that I write about throughout the book. It's probably one of the, the larger topics I carry through the, the entire book. Uh, the, 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 that is that uh, Ferdy Falk and Bob Baranaskis, the two owners at the time, they, they challenged Elmer to to make Blanton's or to find the Blanton's product in the warehouse. They, they wanted to make money. They were trying to expand a distillery. They were doing other things at the time, contract distillation for other brands. They were importing uh, different wines, beers, liquors, uh, exporting things. They were very much uh, involved in multiple facets of, of alcohol distribution, not just manufacturing. And so they, they were hustlers. They wanted to make money and they told Elmer, find us something good. You know, we want a $25 bourbon and, you know, we need to be able to, to figure out how to sell something that's worthy of that price point back in 1984. So, you know, Elmer, as the story goes, you know, remembered uh, Albert Blanton, the legendary Colonel Blanton's favorite preference for sugar barrels or honey barrels, special barrels that are aged in, in the warehouse and have better, better flavor based on their aging techniques in the wood um, in location of the warehouse, et cetera. So Elmer taps into that legend and he goes out to the, to the warehouse and he finds, you know, the premium barrels. And then they say, perfect, let's bottle this one barrel at a time for single barrel product blends. Um, yeah, that's great. Well, it wasn't like Elmer was the only one that knew that the single barrels spread certain barrels throughout the warehouse rather were better. Uh, everybody knew that the warehouse foreman, the Ferdy and, and Bob, and everybody knew that there was always good barrels throughout the warehouse. Just nobody had the guts to kind of put them into a single barrel product at that point and not mingle them all together. So um, if it weren't for Ferdy and Bob's tenacity and desire to make money, Elmer was, you know, he was on, ready to retire. He, he wasn't like sitting there 
every day in a think tank trying to create new marketing strategies. So it's a, it's a bit of a marketing ploy that you know he gets all the credit. And I try to give credit to Ferdinand Bob. Yeah, and what a what a bizarre thing to think about at the time is single barrel had never been done. So, and you're right that I've heard the story up to this point that it's just like wise old Elmer knew, you know, he's like, I got it and I want to have this, you know, groundbreaking bourbon. Um, That, that little bit of info is vital, I think, to understand. Sometimes we might ask ourselves, why don't we see things like this right now? Or why doesn't this distiller, why doesn't that person come up with this amazing type of idea? And it might be, that you don't understand the societal and the management, the management pressure at the time. Mm-hmm. It was not just this artistic vision that he suddenly had, <laughs> I guess is what I'm Absolutely. getting at. Absolutely. And, and, uh, you know, and, and I think Ferdy and Bob, you know, I don't know how you market a story with the name Ferdy and, and Bob Baranaskis, <laughs> you know, Ferdy Falk, Bob Baranaskis, uh, Elmer T. Lee, um, Albert Bland, you know, those are Kentucky names. They, they, uh, certainly have the pedigree. And so they get the credit, but, uh, there is, you know, um, there is more to the story. That's for sure. And uh, and I spoke quite a bit with um, Ferdy Falk's son, who really was instrumental in kind of providing me, you know, details on what it was like back then. Um, you know, both the, in the market, uh, the industry, and then uh, you know how how Blanton's was formed. Wow. Now, what was that like as you're going through and doing these interviews? I mean, I imagine that had to be incredibly yeah. exciting to be kind of unearthing these truths as you as you wrote the book. Yeah, it, it, it was. There was. The, the, probably the hard part um, was sometimes having to correct even the people that I was interviewing when mm. when knowledge that I gained somewhere else maybe conflicted. Example of that would be, um, and I hope he never watches this uh, or listens, but um, Chris Falk, who's an awesome guy, by the way, told a story and I actually do references in the book as well um, about him recalling his father drawing the, the uh, Blanton's bottle on a napkin while they were sitting in a midtown Manhattan bar restaurant and he sort of alluded to it being almost like his father's design or something that was invented there within the 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 family or the the, you know the the business um one of the people who i was able to connect with it was great information um informational source for my book was uh adam diadario which is he was part of a family that had a design agency uh and they were based in new york city uh, Blanton's, or rather Age International at the time, worked with that their agency to effectively design the label, to um, come up with the box, the packaging, etc. And they worked with the Adario to source the bottle that was previously used two times before Blanton's. So it wasn't Elmer T. Lee that created the bottle design, which some folks at Buffalo Trace still, still proclaim to this day. Uh, it wasn't Mr. Ferdy Falk, you know, who owned the one of the owners at the time, it it really was a bottle that had been used as far back as 1968, and basically Diadario went out and found the bottle and started, you know, recommended it to Age, and then uh, they started using it. And of course, it became the Bitlands bottle. That's what everybody knows it as now, but um, was not original to the brand. Wow, and yeah, and how much? How often do you hear that that you're paying for the bottle, or you're paying for the horse on top of the bottle, yeah. or something like yeah. that? Yeah, and that's actually what I want to get into next. Is so sure. you know, Blanton's went from this this idea of selling bourbon one barrel at a time to 
in the whiskey world, almost like the boogeyman. I mean, it's like to enthusiasts, it's a controversial topic. To people who are just learning about bourbon, it's like the bourbon. It's like I got to get my hands on it. I hear it at the yeah. liquor store all the time. I'm looking, you know, yeah. at the at the shelf, and you're <laughs> hearing people ask if there's Blantons. How did yep. we get here? <laughs> is my is my <laughs> biggest question. I think is how did yeah. we get from A to B? I think I think. Um specific to Blanton's and, and the, the, the drive and the popularity and the hype, I think fantastic marketing and great luck uh, would be the way I would summarize that. And again, I, I reference this quite a bit and actually go into detail about this topic uh, in, mm-hmm. in the book. But effectively, you know, hype has a, a tendency to sort of self-perpetuate and grow. And, you know, Blanton's has these characteristics that make it a desirable bottle for the same reasons why I first kind of was attracted to the brand. And so many are, you've got the horse, you know, the collectible horse, you've got uh, the cool, the cool shape, um, the exclusivity of it. If you dare use that word um, based or, or difficulty finding it, I'll, I'll say makes it that much more, you know, desirable. You know, you can't get it. If it was so easy to get, it probably wouldn't have the allure that it does. So I think you have all of these things combining and, and the luck part of it is, you know, I, I think kind of going back to what we just mentioned with the, the bottle design and the horse, um, those were certainly marketing decisions that they made back in 1984. Uh, but I don't know that they, you know, they, they, they got lucky that it was such a distinctive product, you know, and it was such a distinctive look, I should say, for their packaging, for their bottles. The, the horse stopper itself was inspired by a, an antique wine stopper. And I actually have a picture of that that inspirational uh, wine stopper in in my book. Uh, Diodario's again were the ones that um, designed that, and so you know they got lucky. They created an iconic look back then that nobody else had. And I, I you know, I I understand um, the current situation in the market where people make fun of people that are you know like me. Oh, I've got to collect all the horses and stuff. I totally get that. But you know, to me, it's interesting because. Blanton's really was original. They were the OGs, right? You know, now when I see other brands like Collectible Keys, <clears throat> I won't mention brand names, but you know, <laughs> I, to me, that's they're the ones you should make fun of. Like they're copying the you know, Blanton's was the OG. Now, yeah, is it overdone? Is it overblown? Do people celebrate the brand way more than they should? Yes, um, you know, probably, probably one of the things I would say is do not hoard your Blanton's, and I'm talking about the standard run of the mill. Blantons, even gold straight from the barrel, you know, those are not unicorns. And I, I kind of feel bad for people that are, oh, I found a bottle and I'm saving it till my son's 21st birthday. No, there are way better bottles you should do use for that. Blantons mm-hmm. is fully obtainable. Granted, you may have to pay more than, you know, than it's worth, but it is not a bottle that that I think deserves that level of, um, I don't know, putting it on a pedestal. Uh, unless it's maybe one of the more rare, very, very collectible versions Standard blind is not a unicorn. Yeah. And I think you, you mentioned how the horse topper was the original idea. And yeah. I want to pause there because sure. I think it's important to note that you, if you call them out for doing a cliche, they're the ones who created the cliche. So it's like, as you mentioned, they're not the ones copying it. They <laughs> came up with this idea. Now, yeah. was the horse stopper from the very beginning? It was. Now, I will side note, in 1999, they okay. added the letters. So early versions oh, okay. did not have the letters. So they definitely did, you know, begin that 
sort of marketing tactic there in 99. But you go back to 99 and bourbon was, was still pretty much dead. It wasn't like they were capitalizing on a market of people that were flooding bourbon and really, you know, buying up anything with uh, Bland's logo. Not, not at all. Um, you know, it was starting to have some signs of an uptick, but it, it certainly wasn't uh, what it is today. So yeah, that was, you know, still over 20 years ago that they made that change and, you know, can't help it. The bottle's it's cool. People want it, you know, and, and even the guys who hate it, even the, the people who hate it. I think what I, where I wrote the book from the mindset of, look, I can't just be a fanboy. I can't just glorify this brand. Other than to say, yes, we can argue about how it tastes and how it compares and if it's worth the price. And I'll probably agree with the people that are against Blanton's on those arguments. But from the his, historical perspective, that's where the brand has significance. And so, you know, mm. being, as we already talked about, the first single barrel, uh, first widespread uh, single barrel, um, it's historic. And, and it, it paved the way in a lot of ways for bourbon's comeback, which we've seen today, because it created an, a top shelf product, a premium product that really didn't exist. And other brands soon copied. You had other other brands out there that created you know, small batch um, started up and, and, and other single barrels. And those created a, a strong top shelf for bourbon that didn't exist. And, and later down the road, that's, you know, some of the first products that uh, consumers gravitated towards as, as bourbon started its comeback. So Blanton sowed the seeds for that. And I think that's, we should appreciate it, even if we want to uh, disagree on sort of the current day market for the, you know, and price point for what people are paying for, for Blanton's. Yeah, and that's a great point. I mean, think about the where the state of bourbon was when they came out with it. It it was essentially like a monster of marketing, but the the monster was created by the economic pressure. So it, it sure it has kind of snowballed into this thing that we have today because it's still great marketing and it's still good bourbon. Yeah. But it's uh yeah, that's a that's a very good point. It kind of pulled the bourbon industry back from a brink that it was on at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I I think that's a, a great point, and I do have a couple of nerd questions I want to ask about it as oh, well. Oh, sure. <laughs> um, I, think, I think you and I are in agreement with a lot of things about, you know, I've always told people I think it's a very good bourbon. Um, I, do, I did a whole series of, of Better Than Blanton's, and I do blind tastings right. versus Blanton's, and I'd point yeah. out a lot of ones that are near its Ohio MSRP, so near that right. $60 mark. Um, yep. Some of them do way better than Blanton's, and some of them are worse. It, it's for yeah. me, it's it's a fairly priced bourbon in Ohio, yep. um, so, but I I do still find the history of it and the history of the Buffalo Trace Distillery incredibly interesting. Yeah, it is fascinating. Yeah, one one aspect of that, you know, they're known for these few mash bills that they do, and at the time, so when they came up with Blantons and, and they're like, we're gonna pick out the honey barrels, was Blantons essentially just a single barrel version of? this of insert bourbon here like it's just single barrel buffalo trace i know that's not the case now but is that how it kind of began? yeah good, no good good question so if you go back to the the 80s um and, I, and even buffalo trace doesn't their historians their uh, archives team doesn't have fantastic records um first off you, you certainly didn't have near the number of bourbons produced today um that you, you know as you did back then back then it was primarily ancient age uh that was their big brand uh, and then, and then Blanton's and eventually Elmer T. Uh, T. Lee, Rock Hill Farms, um, Hancock's Residence Reserve, etc. So back then there was only a you know a variety of bourbons they were producing, and mash bills likely differed back then. Um, there's no either no records of this, or more likely nothing that Buffalo Trace would ever share publicly. 
But <laughs> okay. back then, you just you, you probably had more experimentation. You likely had longer aging happening uh, due to the fact that bourbon wasn't in high demand, and so it sat there in the, in the barrel longer. So there's no real good answer to your question, um, other than the mash bill back then probably fluctuated. And you know, it, it's it's obvious that stuff something has changed. If you taste, actually, right now I'm sipping on a '93 um, Blantons, and it's mm-hmm. it's not even the same bourbon. And, that, and that's not to say it's hands down better. It is better than the current product, but it's just a completely different flavor profile. You would never even put it in the same ballpark as as the, today's product. And so, you know, something has changed, and and you know, it's a combination of things. They 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 do chill filter now, whereas back then they charcoal filtered. Uh, there's, you know, as I mentioned, the aging likely being different um, and potentially the mash bill. So, you know, but it evolved. It evolved. In, this, in, in 1991, mm-hmm. you had uh, Age International being purchased, again, by a Japanese company called um, Takara Shuzo. And when that happened, they acquired those, what we now know as mash bill two brands. So they are the owners oh. of those brands I mentioned a, a moment ago. And then Buffalo Trace, what is now known as Buffalo Trace, the, the distillery itself went on to develop, uh, of course, their own um, their own products and under different mash bills. So mm-hmm. that's so at the time when they were picking out these barrels, it might have even been like, we don't know if that's going to end up being ancient age, what that's going to be. But it's a good barrel. So let's bottle it up and let's yeah. sell it as Blanton's. Wow. Yeah. It, you know, even even now, I mean, what goes into Blanton's, you know, that at least what we're told from Buffalo Trace is that, you know, it is mash bill two and it's, it could go into a variety, you know, when they start at aging, it could go into a variety of products. Um, Buffalo Trace uses, as do other distillers, a tasting uh, a board, a group of people essentially that, you know, their palates are honed in on the, the flavor profile for each brand. And so they try to effectively keep the brand within a certain realm of, of um, you know, what, what they believe it should be. And then the bourbon that's not used for that brand, for example, for Blanton's, would then go into another eight, uh, mash bill number two product. So it might wind up in ancient age brand, you know, which is going to be a lower, a lower tier product, lower MSRP. Um, they might reject a barrel that maybe was intended for Blanton's and it, it goes into that instead. That's got to be a job. I, I, where do I sign up for that? <laughs> Just yeah, right. try, you know what? Try their barrels. I, I've noticed, <laughs> they've, I've noticed in all the videos I've seen and people I've talked to, though, unfortunately, in order to do that job well, you have to drink the bourbon and spit it out. And because if you keep consuming it, you know, after about 10 minutes, you're probably going <laughs> to probably not going to be very good at that job. So it does sound like a right. <laughs> it still might be worth it. It'd be hard to, yeah. to spit it out, but it, it might be worth it. Yeah. <laughs> so along this journey, and, and I think you do cover a lot of this in your book. So I appreciate you uh, divulging some of this to me. It, it certainly has me interested because yeah. – this history, it's so hard to find. And I'm, I'm sure, as you said, you had to become an investigative reporter. So what I, a couple of the things I really want to put a pin in, I really want to nail down is like, it was this great marketing idea that they had. And, and as you mentioned, it kind of pulled us out of this, this bourbon glut that we had at the time. Mm-hmm. At what point did it really like catch fire and become like this thing where it's like, you can't just walk into a liquor store and get Blanton's anymore. Was it always you know, that, that really, way? Or? No, that really didn't happen until probably, well, it depends on where you're at, you know, in the country. But, you know, if you're in a, a liquor control state like Ohio, um, mm-hmm. probably not till you know, two, three years before COVID. I mean, I can remember 
you know, we'll say 16, 15, 2015. Um, you know, again, it just, it just depends. But I, I remember going into stores and paying uh, MSRP like 2019 in Tennessee, for example. Um, so wow. it's out, it, it was out there. Um, and even today, you know, it just depends on if you time it, time it right, I guess, you know, it depends on the States and how they do the bottle drops into the, the retail stores, but you know, it is still possible to f- get lucky. Um, I don't, you know, I don't ever hope to find it, nor, <laughs> nor do I expect to see it on the shelf. And, and I definitely don't ask for it. You know, that's gotta be the most annoying question that a liquor store employee gets, uh, you know, or if you're outside of Ohio, maybe asking for Weller too. That's uh, we have plenty of it here, but you know, out, out, out there, I hear it's pretty hard to come by. So that's uh, yeah, those are, yeah, those are tough ones. <sighs> yeah, I, I we're very lucky with the Weller. I actually managed to snag a foolproof last year, which I was really excited oh, nice. about. But very cool. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so I guess is it just is it just a matter that it was the perfect monster of marketing in the age of like Instagram and TikTok that it just like yeah exploded yeah in in the in the late you know we'll say 2008 2009 you definitely see this uptick of bourbon um getting mentioned as social media took off uh you see it in hollywood and movies uh, starting to you know kind of grow from there so uh, with that you definitely you know it, it was i think a couple different forces that grew together and then you had this generation coming up you know people that they wanted something more than just you know, vodka, you know, which was a staple you go back to the bars and the clubs in the you know, early 2000s and it was vodka, vodka, vodka. Uh, but, you know, as you kind of graduate beyond that, you want something with a little more flavor. Uh, whiskey was there and it was sort of this untouched world because in this, again, another topic from the book, the people such as myself, our, my parents' generation, the baby boomers, were not drinking whiskey. That's one of the reasons why it suffered so much throughout the, the 70s, 80s and, and into the 90s was because they rejected it. And so it was this uh, the most popular distilled spirit in America up until uh, the late 60s, I believe. And so with that, it traditionally was this amazing product, but it had this grisly sort of masculine vibe to it, cowboy image. And yeah. the baby boomers rejected it. They didn't want it. They went to the vodkas and the gins, wine, um, meanwhile, as I, I've said earlier, you've got Japan who came along and they embraced that masculine sort of American image. And, you know, it took a while for Americans to come back around. So that this generation shifted again. And by the early 2000s, there was this, you know, new group of sort of your, your Gen Xers and, you know, now millennials and so forth that really just, it became cool and it, it just sort of snowballed. So. Okay. And I guess it kind of makes sense, you know, if it, it was made for such good marketing that then after that generation went away and you had this generation that kind of grew up at least learning the internet and then on the internet that that marketing hit the internet and then it just became this, like, it was like a catalyst for it to just take off again. I just killed my first bottle of Blanton's that I have. I mean, I have a second bottle over there, but nice, what a, nice. Never a better time to, to kill a bottle of Blanton's than when Listen, you're learning all about it. Listen, a bottle kills good. Right? I, I do have um, I do have a few rare ones, and for the people watching, uh, I can show these. This this yes. here is something very special. This is uh, I don't know if you can see that, but it's 141.9 proof. This is the wow. highest uh, proof Buffalo Trace has ever bottled Blanton's. And this is the only known bottle to exist. This is one of only three in this label, uh, which is a metallic label. It's called My Only Blanton's. And so 
this was a release that was done for uh, private customers in, in Japan. It was a basically a exclusive barrel pick program where you could buy the entire barrel. And this was back in 2007, 2006. Uh, and it, you could buy the whole barrel. They made a, this cool label. And uh, obviously it all went to Japan. There was only a few barrels made. I think I have all the stats, of course, in the book or on my website, but only a yeah. few barrels of it. And so there weren't that many bottles to begin with. And this particular proof, they were all, uh, each barrel was a different proof. This 141.9 is confirmed to be the highest. So I was able to acquire this from Japan through through a network of people, but um, there's probably more out there. Probably the original owner of this barrel may have some in you know, his or her house, but uh, you know, this is the only known one. So 141.9 proof. I'd love to try it, but I'd never bring myself to open that bottle. <laughs> So, yeah, so you're saying not only was it a rare program that they had these barrels, but that right. specific barrel was the highest proof of all of highest that program. Proof. Correct. Wow. Correct. Of all time. Now, so. as you mentioned, you haven't opened that one yet. Of the ones you have opened, do you see huge variation in the taste or the profile or, or what's that experience like? Yes. Yes. I mean, you know, I would say that by and large – Standard Blantons, which you're drinking 93 proof over there, mm -hmm. more or less taste consistent. Because, again, there's a consistent profile that they try to maintain. And, and I'm using some mm -hmm. pretty wide boundaries here. There are variations from bottle to bottle. Um, I, you know, maybe one out of ten that I'll have from a current day release will, will just be exceptionally better. Um, maybe okay. one out of ten will be pretty hard to drink. Uh, I've had that, too, um, where there's just somewhere. I've even had some some uh, store picks that you, know, you think, okay, it's a store pick. It's probably going to be pretty good. And there's been some that, you know, maybe something, maybe the bourbon was stored in the window or something because this is just not good. Um, you know, it got hot yeah. in the sun or something, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think by and large you see consistent with the current products. I think where you see the, the big variation is where you get into the, the older, the, the dusty Blanton's, as I mentioned earlier, that it's just significantly different. Um, those those dusty bottles from the '80s and '90s are highly coveted, um, valuable, but they're also exceptional drinkers. More often than not, you, you run a risk as the bourbon is that old. You run a risk of you know potentially some sort of contamination or you know if air air got into the bottle or something. You know you you, yeah. you have some challenges there. It could have been stored in the sun, as I mentioned, but uh, um, but generally pretty exceptional stuff. This '93 that I actually just finished off as well as is just i wish i could drink that all day long because that's it's it, it's hands down better than today's product so wow now would you say across all of the the different blanton's labels they're producing today they're pretty consistent as well yeah i mean consistent within that each each proof point so you know you've got gold okay. at 103 proof you know i wouldn't i wouldn't compare the different proof points to one another because there obviously mm -hmm. is intended variation there with the different proofs um, and, and certainly nuances, uh, with that, but yeah, within each, each product line, I mean, they're, they're putting out a pretty, a pretty good consistent product there. I, I think what I recommend yeah. to people, how I change, you know, for the people out there that say, you know, Blanton says, I can't stand it. It's just not my favorite bourbon, blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. And again, I don't fully disagree with those, those sentiments, but seek out at least a sample of a, one of the, the more exclusive, um, special varieties that they produce, you know, the La Maison de Whiskey for France every year, the um, uh, special releases, which are European releases. Uh, these are the ones that people, you know, tend to see some pretty high values on, uh, you know, thousand bucks, two thousand bucks. 
uh, and they're still new, right? This is I'm not talking about dusty versions of that stuff. I'm talking about the, the current releases. Um, it's expensive. Is it still overpriced at those price points? Yes. Uh, I don't know that okay. any bourbon is really worth worth that much. You know, it's more about the exclusivity of drinking it than how you know how good can it really taste. Um, but point being, those are still exceptional blends. I mean, I've turned Blanton's haters into momentary Blanton's lovers just from sips of, of bottles like that um, because it, they're hand selected and they're done for these you know two or three barrels for an exclusive release. Of course, they're going to pick something that tastes tastes amazing. So it's uh, right. Highly, highly recommended. Now you might be more qualified than anybody to tell us what, what in your opinion is a fair price for the run of the mill Blanton's 93 proof. What's a fair price for that? Great question. So easy 60, $70 that sort of that MSRP. I think that's fair. It is not bad bourbon. Um, it is really good bourbon more often than not. Um, it is not, it is not worth double, triple, you know, some of those where you see, you know, prices on, online. It, it's not mm-hmm. for, as far as the taste goes. I mean, it, it'd be hard to argue that it was, um, you know, if somebody out there is consistently paying that much because they love the flavor of Blanton so much, they should participate in some blind, <clears throat> blind tests, be, uh, taste tests, because <laughs> I have a feeling it's just in their head. Um, and now I say that not to hate on Blanton's. It's just, that's where I feel the, the price point is now. Yeah. The, the, other, the other point, though, is if you really want it and you've never had a bottle, right? You're new, you know, just like your channel, Whiskey Noobs, right? You're yep. new to bourbon and you're just like, man, I want a bottle. And these guys are talking about it and stuff. Well, then, then find one. And if you have to pay double for it, that's okay. You know, I wouldn't do that consistently. But mm-hmm. I don't think it's – I don't think the online hatred towards those who, you know, kind of – pay a little bit extra for Blanton's is warranted. If that person is just kind of getting into it and just trying to get a bottle for the first time, I think it's, it's with worth, it's worth that. I'm right with you there. I, I say that all the time, not just about Blanton's because I think Blanton's, as I mentioned, when I do my blind tastings, I pick stuff a little bit more expensive, a little bit less expensive. And it's always, it, it, it lands at around that $60 mark mm-hmm. for me. I tell people yeah. that same thing with Buffalo trace because <clears throat> yep. in some areas it's hard to find. And I've had people be so disappointed because they paid $60 or something for the bottle of Buffalo Trace. And I always try to say, it's not a $60 bottle. It's 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 a right. it's a little bit better than the 27 that they're asking for it. Um, and I think for Buffalo Trace and for Blanton's, that is one of the reasons that we see that hate online that you're talking about is because people yeah. build it up <clears throat> in their mind to be this just amazing bourbon. Yeah. And they think it's worth <clears throat> that $150, $120, but yeah. it's not. It's only worth it if you're, like well, you said, doing it to try it for the first time. Yeah, yeah. You, you really want it. You really want it for the first time. You've never had yeah. it. And if you're like me, I would do that versus go wait in line. You know, put my chair out, camp out. That, no, no, it's that time is time is money, also, right? So, if you're doing something productive with that time that you're not wasting camping in line somewhere, then you know what's what's a big deal if you, as long as you don't consistently pay that much, then there shouldn't be that much hatred. And and kind of to your point around, you know, the flavor and is it worth it? You know, I'm obviously a Blanton's guy. I don't really have an extensive bottle. I'm like most people. I don't. My bar in my basement is there's not a lot of stuff. I have things that people give me and. You know, I'll sort of, you know, buy whatever, whatever I'm feeling for that week or that month. But, um, 
you know, it's whatever, it's up to you. You're the individual, you know, go for what you like. Albert T. Lee drank his bourbon with seven up or Sprite. Um, that's how he liked it, you know, and he's a legend, right? So, you know, we should, yeah. we should drink it the way we want. We should drink what we want. Um, you know, I, I would argue, you know, is Pappy 23 worth it? I mean, how many blind tests does it come out on top? You know, it's right. It's all, it's all hype, right? It's all, it's all hype. And at the end of the day, there's plenty of good bourbon out there that won't, won't break the bank. So you can confirm the old Elmer T. Lee thing. That's true. That's how he was drinking. Yes, it. absolutely. He's on record saying it. Yep. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty yep, awesome. I haven't record. seen that. I'll have to look. Yeah, I mean, you know, here's a legend. <laughs> yeah. that That's really interesting to me. That's People bring that up a lot of times online, and, and yeah. that's – drink it the way that you want to drink it. I always yeah, say that. Who cares? But I – yeah, I, I think that that's another controversy yeah. online that gets overblown sometimes. And yeah, right. as a short form content creator, I'll make some videos kind of poking fun at different, different yeah, you know, right. oh, drinking it on ice, oh, mixing it. And people yeah. don't like that very much. Yeah. Well, it's, it's some it's of them just, do. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's just like as Jack Daniels bourbon, right? It's like you get this whole, yeah. you know, it's, yeah, you're never going to win these, these arguments. The battles will continue forever. That they will. That they will. Now, you mentioned you don't have a ton of other stuff on your bar, but I did want to ask, do you have a favorite bourbon outside of Blanton's or even all the way outside the Buffalo Trace Distillery? You know, people people ask me that a lot because, again, you would think for a guy like me who is this much into Blanton's, at least as, as a, a collector and a historian, you know, I would be this super big whiskey guy. And the reality is I, I don't. I mean, like – I I guess I'll admit this publicly. I like Woodford Reserve. Um, you know, it just standard <laughs> old Woodford Reserve. Um, I, you know, it's available. I can find it. It's good. Um, Maker's Mark on occasion will hit me. I kind of graduated from that a little bit. No offense to Maker's fans. Um, but yeah, I don't have much of a like go-to. I, I kind of drink anything. So gifted bottles are awesome. Like people come over and they, you know, like behind me here, there's a couple of, maybe a, an angel's envy that just showed up here in the last couple of days. So, you know, that's going to be a good one to, to crack here soon. I don't, I don't really have sort of something that I, I don't, I, I probably have a, a list of ones I don't like more than I like, I guess would be, uh, but even then after a glass, who really cares? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> wow. Yeah, no, it sounds like it's just that's your profile. And I think, as yeah. you mentioned, too, the the history of it is so intriguing. And that's what yeah, that's makes what, that's it what I'm into. interesting. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And that's what we've got a taste of here. And that is what we can read more about in this book. Um, and obviously, I mean, you've been an absolute wealth of knowledge. And I'm, I'm interested in it because... Uh, more than I think any other distillery right now, uh, Buffalo Trace is victim to online rumor so much. So oh, yeah. <laughs> it'll be good yeah. to really clear that up a little bit, I think. Yeah, they, they um, you know, that's, they, they have so many coveted products and so many of their products are allocated now. And so you just have, you know, tons of tons of rumors, tons of you know, speculation, you know, and, I, and I'm almost glad that I'm not quite as into whiskey across the board or bourbon across the board, because I probably care more about some of those, you know, when's the next bottle drop for whatever. And I kind of don't pay much attention to that stuff. I'm, you know, I'm more interested in when the, when the next rare Blanton's release is going to come out and mm -hmm. can I get one for my collection? And uh, that's what makes me a little different than, than most. But, um, but yeah, the book, the book's got a lot of history There's a lot of things I, I haven't mentioned. Right. Um, but there, there really goes, it goes deep into a, a lot of areas and I've gotten great feedback so far from, 
across the the gamut, uh, other whiskey authors, uh, respected people who I who I respect, and you know think, wow, this is this is gonna kind of if I can impress them, then that's gonna be cool. And so it's it, and it's written again not as a, just a fanboy for the brand. It's 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 something that everybody should should um, be able to pick up and learn something from. And very much as I've articulated here on our conversation today, very much uh, I don't I, I don't shy away from going and talking about what makes Blanton's polarized. In fact, there's a whole chapter uh, talking about the polarization of Blanton's and how it's a love it or hate it, and you know all the tater culture, and you know uh, so so I, um, I I I probably take more more hate than anyone. You know, people make fun of me online, and you know I grab pictures of my basement bar and laugh at it and stuff. I don't mind, right? I love it. It's kind of like bringing on them. And in the book, I, I make sure to explore all that and, and not shy away from it. So I, I'm hard pressed to think somebody would read it and, you know, really think that I'm just a, a fanboy that's sold out. And, you know, uh, it's, it's a fair book is my point. <laughs> I like to hear that. And I, I like, yeah, it, it, it seems like, you know, obviously you are a fan of Blanton's, but you're a fanboy who recognizes yeah. as a fanboy. So it's not the same as like, totally just totally. being biased right <laughs> like, exactly yeah. exactly maybe it's worse though because i'm totally aware of it but i'm yet i still do it you know? <laughs> i don't know <laughs> hey yeah I, it's good to have self-awareness i suppose <laughs> that's right that's right so. now what i want to wrap up with because there's a lot of people listening especially like you said whiskey noobs you know there are a lot of folks listening who are maybe newer to the hobby and they're hearing all this controversy. They're hearing that Blanton's is bottom shelf toilet water, and they're hearing that Blanton's is the best <laughs> bourbon that you can get your hands on, and it's yeah. just pay any yeah. amount of money that you can get for it. Yeah. To somebody sitting at home right now, never had a bottle, they're hearing all this controversy. If you just had any yeah. any main advice to them or any statement, what would you yeah, say? Yeah, certainly. I, so first off, again, get it if you want it, and you don't have it, and you've never had it. Um find one and find one to me. And, you know, there's all different ways to do it. I think the the outside of just driving around and wasting time, the, the best legal way to get it is look at online auction houses um, or online liquor stores. So auction houses such as unicorn auctions based here in the U S uh, or different um, European auction houses that can ship legally to the U S those are fantastic ways to get it. Again, you're going to pay a premium, but it's a safe, it's a, it's a pretty safe bet, right? You can't guarantee anything, but um, pretty mm-hmm. safe, safe way to get it. Same thing with online liquor stores. Or, you know, there's multiple websites which are well known. You know, you want to you want to vet it first. You want to make sure it's one that's you know that's reputable. And there are different rules about shipping to different states. Mm-hmm. So you know your your mileage mileage may vary. Um, do your homework. But there's there's plenty of ways to to find Blantons um, if you're willing to pay a little bit and do it legally. So I would say go for it. You know, get your bottle. And that's how I you know I'm not ashamed of minutes. How early in the my collecting journey, I I really wanted a I think it was the uh, special release the the um, the green Blanton's green bottle eighty proof really nothing special and I couldn't I couldn't find it through any of my sources and I just went online found a reputable source and, and uh, was able to buy it through through one of those websites so do your homework though don't you know <laughs> no private yeah. message deals you know no <laughs> don't ads ads that solicit you and you click on you got to be careful like. You know, again, winesearcher.com is a, a website I'd recommend uh, okay. for, for finding, yeah. finding good stores. Yeah. And please, if somebody's commenting on my post and saying, hey, DM me, and they spelled something wrong, and it, yeah. please don't DM <laughs> yeah. them, please. <laughs> don't, don't DM. No, yeah, none of that. So. Oh, my so, goodness. So. Now, is it safe? It. To, yeah. 
is it safe to say if you're going to spend that money to just acknowledge you're spending more than it might be worth to you, but you're spending it so that you can specifically try that whiskey. But just be aware it's probably not going to be worth that 120 that 150 that you're yeah, paying. Yeah, I think I think that that frames it up very well. I, I think that's a perfect way to, you know, it's really just I got to have it and I want to try it and you know, I'm willing to pay a premium and it's the culture we live in today. Sometimes that we're, we're willing to do that. Um, so yeah, I, I that's a hundred percent how I'd say it. And, um, you know, I think I would not recommend buying it at, at that quantity or at that price and hanging on to it for five, 10 years, you know, thinking that it's going to somehow be a bottle worth kind of keeping around. Um, right. they're making plenty of it. In fact, they bottle uh, up to 10,000 bottles a day, uh, in Blanton's, uh, Blanton distilling hall on the, on the, uh, the um, campus. So, they're making a ton of it, making them as fast as they can. And I'll leave a teaser for, for everyone. I go into detail about that in the book as well and how perhaps not all Blanton's is aged fully in Warehouse H. So, Oh, that yeah. is exactly, – I'm need to. So, i like going to skip ahead now and read about yeah, that, I, know, I, think. Right, yeah. <laughs> I think it's chapter 12 or something like that. Yeah, right. Yeah. So there's, okay, a, there's okay. a, little bit of a little bit of history there. But there's plenty of it is the point. This is not – you know, again, it's not a unicorn. Um you just gotta convince, or or find one of your bourbon buddies that's hoarding it and has ten bottles in their basement, right? You know, something like that. Right, right. Make them let you try it. <laughs> right, right. Uh, exactly. Well, Dominic, thank you for coming on the show. I, I really appreciate all this information. I'm a whiskey nerd. I love learning about it. Uh, where can people find your book at? So they can find it uh, either at my website, warehouseh.com, or blantonsbook.com. Those are the two best places. It is also available on Amazon. Uh, I appreciate the, the copies I sell through my website directly because uh, I do autograph all those. So if you if you want it autographed, buy it at blantonsbook.com and it will be autographed. Awesome. Good to know. And I'll throw those links down in the description for you guys who want to click on them and be able to go find the book. Um, and and then you can read up on all this stuff we talked about as well and, and quite a bit more. And I'm excited to <laughs> unravel some more of that. So thank you once again. Thank you for coming on. Uh, this has been a blast for me. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Thank you guys for listening to another episode of Whiskey Noobs. If you need more Whiskey Noobs content in your life, make sure you check out our Patreon page in the show notes. And if you like the show, please make sure to leave a five-star rating or review. It only takes a couple of minutes, and they're way more helpful than people realize. If you want to do tastings alongside the show, make sure you join the email list by sending an email to whiskeynoobspodcast at gmail.com with a subject line that says email list. You'll receive monthly emails with a list of the whiskeys that will be featured throughout the month so that you can buy them ahead of time. You can also find more Whiskey Noobs content on Instagram at Whiskey underscore Noobs and on TikTok at Whiskey Noobs Podcast. Once again, thank you guys for listening. The Whiskey Noobs Podcast does not support underage or otherwise irresponsible consumption of alcohol.